We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we talk about pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are talking about the new Disney Plus Marvel Studios series, WandaVision. WandaVision, WandaVision. Uh, as uh, as you can tell from uh, Jesse's beautiful, melodious theme music, this isn't your typical superhero Marvel Studios uh, series. This is being billed as the first uh, Marvel Studios uh, series, even though there have been Marvel Studios series in there the past. Marvel Television. This is Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige. It's right. all connected. All connected to the greater uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Jesse... Tell us a little bit about what's going on in WandaVision. I will do my best because it is super confusing. And I think that is the joy of it. The first time Marvel presents a uh, television series, uh, it's very much a mystery puzzle that we are trying to solve. Um, It starts off, the aspect ratio is different. It's black and white. Uh, The first episode is 1950s Dick Van Dyke style. We see uh, Wanda Maximoff, Scarlet Witch, and The Vision in a suburban, um, really suburban sitcom. Uh, The second episode, we get to 1960s, still in black and white, very much like bewitched. By the end of that episode, it turns to color. The third episode is 1970s, like Mary Tyler Moore show, like the Brady Bunch. But with each episode, there's something a little bit off, a little bit different. Uh, The second episode ends with somebody intruding into the suburban community and Wanda does that sort of defiant no and all of a sudden it rewinds and starts you know they they change the ending and it turns to color uh by the third episode the character of Geraldine after Wanda has twins within the span of 12 hours uh she uh mentions the word Ultron who was the villain in Avengers Age of Ultron who killed her brother Pietro and Geraldine gets thrown out uh, of this universe and then all of a sudden episode four is really the MCU spectacle that we have been waiting for where it retold everything again but from the outsider's perspective rather than insider's perspective and to quote Dr. Darcy Lewis it's a working theory it's a sitcom starring two Avengers. Right. And so as you can tell from Jesse's uh, explanation there, you know, we're, we're only about halfway through the series run. We don't know how it ends. Uh, we'll hopefully do a follow-up episode at some point down the line. Uh, and the we... words of Wanda Maximoff, we just don't know what to expect. Exactly. Uh, all right. So Jesse, you are uh, of the two of us, uh, you are the Marvel super fan. I'm more of a Marvel casual fan. Uh, what are your feelings and, and impressions about the series so far? So uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I've been waiting to do an episode about uh, an MCU show or movie since we launched our podcast a year and a half ago. And then with uh, 
COVID with coronavirus, the phase four of the MCU has been delayed. Uh, Black Widow was supposed to start it off. And then Falcon and the Winter Soldier was supposed to be the first TV series. Uh, WandaVision was not. I just want to say about that. I uh, suggested we do Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, and I was denied by Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. That's actually not true. We actually launched our, our podcast after Far From Home. Oh, bummer. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, Theory rejected. <laughs> but but uh, WandaVision was not supposed to be the launch of Phase 4. And so uh, my understanding is that um, Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios really learned from the way The Mandalorian uh, was publicized as a Disney Plus uh, event series uh, and how to promote WandaVision. All their trailers and teasers were really great, really had me intrigued. Uh, the first couple episodes were weird. Uh, episodes one and two premiered back to back. I think that was intentional. I think they feared that if they were one week at a time, they would have lost fans. Uh, this is something that I'm also getting used to again, this sort of week to week, having to wait a week for a new episode. That's not what we're used to in this binge watching um, streaming culture that we're in, but it's super to- exciting. Yeah, I have to say I love it. I, you know, I, that's one of the things I miss in, in a way about uh, you know old school TV um, is that anticipation. You know, the 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 theorizing that you get to do week to week. I mean, I remember doing this with you when Lost was still on the yep. air, right? And, uh, and and you just don't get that in a Netflix dump. And, and this. Uh... In some ways, this reminds me a lot of Lost, episode four especially, where what Lost would often do, they do a big reveal, and then the next episode, they'd actually tell the same story from another character's perspective. That's what we got in episode four. Uh, My son, my seven-year-old son and I, do deep dives and YouTube videos. He has all these charts and theories about what he thinks is going on, much like Jimmy Woo and his whiteboard in episode four. Um, but I am loving it. I'm loving that um, Marvel, it seems like they're taking a really big risk and really thinking outside of the box. But with the with the huge impact of the Infinity Saga and these 23 films that came before it, I think they could totally roll the dice. They went cosmic and everybody thought they were crazy for doing Guardians of the Galaxy. And that was a huge success. Uh, the Infinity Stones and Thanos, uh, were, right? Infinity War and Endgame, those were the highest grossing films of all time. And they, they show that uh, Kevin Feige knows what he's doing. Marvel Studios know what they're doing. Uh, this is different. Uh, it's also different to have Marvel in a television format only about a half an hour at a time. Uh, but it's super exciting. And I, I can't wait to see what happens next. Mike, what do you think about the show? Yeah, so I, uh, after watching the first couple of episodes, I wasn't sure what to, uh, what to think. Um, uh, so I'll say a few things. First is, right, as, uh, as, as not quite the same level of, of uh, Marvel super fan as you are. I mean, I've, I've, I've enjoyed virtually every uh, Marvel movie in, that, that has come out. Um, I haven't, I didn't see, you know, the TV shows, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Those uh, don't count. That was, that was garbage. Uh, uh, Agent Carter, things like that. Uh, but, uh, but I, but I've mostly loved the, you know, decade long run of, of Marvel movies that have come out. Um, you know, as I think back on it, I, I, I had uh, over time become more of a DC film fan, um, you know, Superman, Batman, uh, that sort of thing. But that's largely because that was, 
you know, those were the uh, movies that came out at a certain time in my upbringing. Uh, but going back before that, you know, the, when I was a kid, uh, the things that I loved the most were the um, X-Men cartoon series that's now available on Disney+. Plus. Um, uh, before that, Spider-Man was, you know, huge for me. So in a way, I've, I've really also always been a Marvel fan too, uh, but I, I've never been uh, as uh, deep into it as, as you. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Vision and uh, Scarlet Witch are, um, are, are definitely more second or third tier characters that I was totally unfamiliar with. Almost, but that's what's even totally crazier. What? Right? This is not like an Iron Man TV show to start us off. Right. right? And it's even like Iron these... Man, even Iron Man was a second tier Marvel character. Uh, right. You know, uh, Marvel Studios didn't have the rights to its big characters when it started, right? Spider-Man and X-Men were at Fox. Those were the big characters. Uh, Fantastic Four. I think Fox had the rights to Fantastic Four as well. Yeah. So right. So they all they the best they had were uh, were Captain America and Iron Man, which by that point were were second tier characters. But Wanda, uh, Scarlet Witch, and and Vision uh, are you know even um, uh, lesser known characters than that. And so when they came out uh, in uh, in Avengers: Age of Ultron, um, I, I was familiar with Quicksilver more because of uh, because of X Men. There was already a Quicksilver character, Quicksilver being Pietro. Uh, Scarlet, which is twin brother, uh, there was already a Quicksilver version in um, a, pre a previous X-Men movie, and he had been uh, present in the um, uh, cartoon series as well and in the comic books. So anyway, there's some familiarity uh, there, but uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch uh, were, you know, not like childhood icons of mine. Uh, they were not uh, characters that I found to be the most compelling characters in the uh, MCU films that they had been featured in before. I was a little bit wary about a series that was going to follow them because I just, you know, didn't quite care as much what was going on with them. Although I do, you know, now I'm kind of invested in what's going on in the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so the ways in which this show um, hooks into that, um, I think are going to be really interesting. The question for me will be, you know, um, will, will I need more than um, a kind of, you know, uh, passing familiarity with what's gone on in the MCU uh, for the course of however many films there have been over the past decade um, in order to really appreciate what's going on in this show? Uh, or uh, or do I need an encyclopedic knowledge of, of Marvel in order to, to do it? And the jury is still out on that a little bit for me, but here's what I do really appreciate. Like you said, I, I really appreciate the inventiveness of telling a superhero uh, story in in really you know unique ways. I think that Marvel has dabbled in that a little bit before. You know, Captain America and the Winter Soldier is, I think, you know, like a spy what, espionage exactly. And I think it, you know it, it's um, genre bending in that way. You know, made it one of the most interesting and funnest uh, of the Marvel uh, movies. Uh, you know, similarly, uh, Endgame was uh, kind of like that too. It had that sort of, you know, time skipping uh, back to the future kind of quality to it um, that, that made it kind of fun, right? So, uh, so I, I like that Marvel is trying to take the superhero genre to new places, playing off of this idea that 
um, you know, Steven Spielberg a, a number of years back said that you know superhero movies are kind of like westerns, right? So like it's a genre in and of itself. And so what Marvel's doing here is saying, no, we can actually take the superhero tropes and characters and place them into new genres. You mentioned The Mandalorian. I think that Star Wars is kind of exploring that territory too, where it's putting Star Wars into a Western or into a, uh, uh, you know, Kurosawa kind of Japanese uh, uh, samurai film. Uh, so I think that that's great. And, and as, a, as someone who grew up on, you know, those classic, you know, Nick at Night TV shows, you know, uh, I right. Love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and bewitched and the Brady Bunch all of the I I thought that the mastery of uh those callbacks uh the beats and the tropes of those shows was impeccable from the, the, the dialect and, yeah, and, and the performances and, that uh, that Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany put in just on the top level are are great and the the range that you could see you know them kind of you know doing just spot on performances in, in each of those different uh, periods and genres were awesome. I can't say enough about Katherine Hahn's performance uh, in, in this show so far. I can't wait to see more of her. Um, so I mean, I'm intrigued. Uh, and, and I think that it's been uh, good so far, definitely exceeded my expectations. I will say that I'm now an Elizabeth Olsen stan, right? right? I think that her performance uh, is Emmy worthy truly, and the way that she switches it on and off uh, from the happy-go-lucky sitcom to the very dark, which we'll talk about in a second, and uh, grieving Wanda Maximoff. Right. Um, I was never a fan of Paul Bettany's The Vision just because Vision was, right? This, he's, an, he's an android, right? right? He right. doesn't write no emotion um, or anything. As Jarvis, as the voice of Jarvis in, in the... Um, Avengers, first Avengers movie and the first three Iron Man movies, uh, he was hilarious. Um, and we see some of that humor finally coming out in this sitcom version of right. It turns out that that Paul Bettany is an incredible slapstick actor, and I don't think he's ever flexed that muscle before. He actually met with Dick Van Dyke uh, in preparation for, for filming this series. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. There's, there's in, in episode two... Um, there's this, you know, very kind of kitschy, you know, 1960s bit where uh, Vision accidentally swallows a piece of gum. Uh, and you can see this cartoon version where it kind of gums up, pun intended, the uh, gears on his insides. Uh, and it and how that presents is that he's, you know, totally smashed drunk uh, and then has to do this uh, magic show uh, where, where he's uh, doing it, uh, playing it drunk. And it's just a just a fantastic, bro. I hope that he also gets nominated for an Emmy for this. I could definitely see that happening. Um, you know, I, I think Jack Schaefer, who, who is the creator and, and head writer of the show, uh, she really thought a lot about the sitcom format and it's very intentional. She said in several interviews that, that sitcoms are intentional and that sitcoms going from decade to decade are intentional. We started the 50s, 60s, 70s. Episode four was was uh, called for a reason. We interrupt this program right. because it showed sort of the outside world of this, uh, whether it's an alternative reality or this um, 
hex magic bubble that Wanda Maximoff has created. Uh, I assume the next episodes that we'll get uh, are the 80s, right. the so 90s, I'm we get 2000s. Like some family ties and growing pains. We see it. It seems that in the teaser trailers to come, there's there's a modern family. There's there's a full house aspect to it. Great. It looks like a lot of these family suburbs sitcom type of shows um for those who are who are comic nerds right there are some theories that it's taking from a number of comics uh, runs that's what marvel studios tends to do it sees its um it sees its comic books now as sort of um throwing things against the wall and seeing uh what sticks to see what uh, shows and which storylines could be effective in a movie or television format. There's some that suggests uh, Tom King's The Vision Run, which talks about Vision creating a sort of synthesoid uh, family uh, and going to the suburbs and also the House of M, the post-Avengers disassembled story, the House of M, where Wanda Maximoff creates this alternative reality and sort of goes crazy, uh, are bits and pieces of those play into this story. All right, so let's nerd out a little bit, Jesse. Uh, Too late. <laughs> um, on that theme, um, what do you think is happening here and uh, in, in this show, and, and what do you think is going to happen? Um, Wanda's dealing with a lot of grief, right? What, what was amazing about the third, the, the, the very beginning, the cold open of the fourth episode, when Monica Rambeau, we find out Geraldine is Monica Rambeau, who we last saw as a kid in Captain Marvel, which took place in 95. This takes place in 2023 or so, right? That it, it, it puts this in the timeline and lets us know that this happens three weeks after Avengers Endgame. Right, three weeks after the the blip, after Hulk snaps his fingers and half of the world's population comes back to life, and that's really important because Wanda was also snapped, and so right before she was snapped, she sees Vision die and sees Vision, the love of her life, die twice. First, she kills Vision, and then Thanos turns back time at the end of Infinity War to bring him back to life so he could take the Mind Stone and kills Vision again. And so she's been sitting with this immediate grief and then is snapped and comes back to life. So all of this is really the initial stages of grief for her playing out. I should note that the death of her twin brother Pietro was never explored in the MCU. Right. Uh, it's crazy that Age of Ultron is coming up again and again because as you and I talked before we recorded this, that was probably the worst of the four Avengers team-up movies. Four and a half if we count Captain America Civil War. Um, and all of this is really, right, her, That that's her origin story. Right. And um, they bring up in episode three, Pietro's death. And when Monica Rambo says he was killed by Ultron, all of a sudden they're bringing it back to this movie and just reminding you how deeply connected all of these movies are. And you don't need to see the movies to understand what's going on, but it sort of helps and adds another layer. I think a lot of this is, is um, Scarlet Witch dealing with her grief and not being able to process her grief. I believe that she cre either created this alternative reality and has everybody trapped in it. Westview, all the residents of Westview stuck in this bubble. Uh, I mentioned uh, in episode four that the, that the static that's surrounding the town is CMBR, this radiation that's 
was created with the Big Bang, the Infinity Stones were also created during the Big Bang. And if she got her powers from the Infinity That's established Stone, science. Well, right, right, but with the Infinity Stones. No, that Wong says this at the beginning of uh, Infinity War. So if she got her powers from the Mind Stone, right during the experiments that that uh, Baron uh, von, von Stryker right did to her, then um, Strucker, Strucker, right. sorry, yeah. then Stryker is a different character. She, then, then it leads us to believe that if she's using her powers to create this this alternative reality, then that CMBR could be created by, by her. Kevin Feige has said um, in the past that she was the strongest Avenger. Um, and we just never saw that happen. It was clear that she also doesn't necessarily know how to use her powers. We saw right. that at the beginning of Civil War when she ended up killing uh, the delegation from Wakanda and Lagos um, accidentally. What is happening? I, I think it's this well, alternative so, reality. Yeah, so, you so you think that uh, that that Wanda has created this reality as a way of uh, coping with her grief over Vision's death? Yeah, I I believe at some point we're gonna get right. Uh, save this for the receipts, if I'm right. That at some point we're going to get a flashback to her uh, and maybe Pietro. Uh, when they were being tested by Hydra and she ended up in Sokovia watching a lot of old sitcoms, right? In the background, there were these old sitcoms, much like we would watch Nick at Night or whatever, uh, that she was watching that. And so that is what soothes her. If you think about the sitcom format in general, the whole idea of a sitcom is that within that half an hour, the issue gets resolved, Every episode, there's a different issue and it always gets resolved at the end of those 30 minutes. And it's this happily ever after. And so I think she is trying to create that happily ever after where no matter what, the issue is going to get resolved. Yeah. So um, that, that's that's my sense of things, at least at you know, this stage of the game, right? That, that uh, um, you know, episode four really kind of leans hard into that. I, I think that, you know, the the... Um, the trope of mystery box filmmaking, uh, TV making, is that, you know, that being the, uh, the sort of obvious answer uh, may end up being a misdirection. Uh, we'll see. Or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's like, we think that that's a misdirection, so we should be looking for other explanations, but really that's the answer in the first place. Uh, you know, I think about uh, Lost when, when, I, when, when that sort of stuff comes up. But let's, let's go with that for a minute. And let's talk about uh, this as a sort of meditation um, on the grief process. I mean, you know, as you know, in our in our work, we you know we, we uh, encounter uh, and uh, and work a lot uh, with people who are going through various stages of grief. I mean, I think that you and I could both say that um, uh, that that you know over the past year, um, there's been a lot of grief, both that we've experienced uh, in our congregations. Uh, but also that we've wrestled with personally. Um, and so I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about um, how this show thinks about the process of coping with grief and how that jives with your understanding of that process as a rabbi and from Jewish tradition. I think ritual is so important on our ends, right? The reason why you have Shiva, Shloshim, 
that you know you'd bet Chodesh, right? That that the first year of mourning you have that annual yard site is under is an understanding that in some ways mourning never stops. We just learn to adjust to the world all around us and we lean on community. Uh, I, I, I don't know about you, Mike, but I think what's been hardest is, and, and we try so hard, um, but what's been hardest is a virtual Shiva, uh, right? That's people need to know that there are other shoulders there to cry on and people feel each other's presence, but it's just not the same when we can't physically be together. Uh, to get personal a, a second, um, I remember when my father-in-law passed away um, and um, my wife has a half-sister from her father's first marriage um, who is not Jewish. And um, she and her half-sister would check in uh, and she would talk about how our apartment in New York was just packed with people every day of Shiva for you know 12 hours a day. Uh, and she was just wiped out and exhausted and would ask her sister, uh, who's Catholic um, about her experience. And she would say, you know, she stayed in bed all day. And like, because that is our natural reaction to grief that we want to curl up in a ball and not get out of bed. And Jewish ritual is very practical is it, it forces us to get out of bed, right? Why are we told that we end Shiva by walking around the block? Because if ritual didn't have us do that, then when will we ever go out and embrace the, the real world again and smell the fresh air and see the sunshine? That's what ritual does. And without it, I think we sit with our grief, which ultimately I think that's what's happening here. Wanda hasn't had an opportunity to process her grief. Right. That's right. I mean, so she's retreated, right? She's gone into her own kind of uh, her, her own bubble, literally, right? And, uh, and, and uh, has separated herself um, from all the rest of the world, you know, and, and, you know, constructed this sort of imaginary reality for her, all of which, you know, is, you know, a deliberate attempt uh, to ignore the reality of what has happened to her, right? You see that, like, glimpse of dead vision in episode four. It's a really haunting I screamed. Image. Yeah, yeah, a haunting image, right? And 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 you you know you see what that does to her because it's this momentary realization that she has of like a reality that she's trying to run away from. And I think you're right about Jewish tradition that it has us directly confront the uh, the the reality of the loss, right? So it has us uh, actually participate in burying our dead. Right, we don't let somebody else do it for us. Like we're the ones who do it. We rip our clothing, right? Because what has happened is um, irreversible. In the same way that even if I were to sew up a tear in fabric, uh, it would never look the same again. So I, you know, kind of express right. that grief on the outside by by tearing clothing. And like you said, we we're, we're um, uh, the community is obligated um, to be present for us, um, and. Um, they're supposed to wait for us to, uh, uh, for those who are going through grief, to um, to initiate conversation. Um, that the conversation should be, you know, the ability for the uh, for the grieving person to process the loss um, at their pace and on their terms, but in the presence of loved ones, right? And so, what? Right, traditionally, doing... you go into a shiva home and right. you're silent until the mourner speaks. 
Right. And so what Wanda is doing is exactly the opposite of all of those things, right? She is running away. She is isolating. She's pretending that the, that what has happened hasn't happened. Um, she is, you know, engaged in all sorts of um, distracting uh, activities, right? All of these, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s uh, sitcoms, you know, are really presenting a uh, uh, you know, a model of America, and it's it's you know it's it's great sort of like sociological um, uh, history too, uh, or historical sociology about the ways in which um, those television series, uh, the ways in which you know in some ways suburban life uh, during those times were were attempts for those who were were privileged enough to be able to uh, benefit from them um, that they could escape uh, from you know from the from the you know really disturbing realities of the time, right? This is in the wake of um, uh, Hiroshima and uh, and Auschwitz, right? In the 1950s, right? That that sort of kind of you know retreat into suburban conformity was in a lot of ways a, a way of escaping the horrors that actually existed in the world that were just then revealed, which which is human instinct, right? I, I remember um, not to get too personal again, but um, when my daughter who has a kidney condition what spends much of her first grade year in the hospital um, to a point having to get chemotherapy treatments. Um, you know, my wife and I would take turns being by her, her bedside and uh, my wife would come into the hospital room and our daughter's asleep and I'm, you know, sitting on the couch streaming Netflix on, on my iPad. She's like, how could you be, you know, watching a Netflix show, uh, you know, when we're in our daughter's hospital room. And for me, that experience of watching something that was funny and really disconnecting from the challenges that my family was what were, were facing, the sort of escapism of it all was so important. And that's the role, I think you're right, that sitcoms have played throughout history uh, of television, uh, which is why I very much think um, it's not just this make-believe suburban world Wanda has created. It's based on sitcom tropes because it's ultimately escapism, escaping from her grief. Right. Well, th I mean, think about the past year, right? What have, you know, those of us who are privileged enough to be able to be sheltering in place during a global pandemic, you know, in other words, like we're not uh, frontline healthcare workers and we're not, uh, um, you know, uh, quote unquote, essential workers, which means that we're not, you know, forced to uh, put ourselves at risk to go into work um, uh, to, uh, to do manual labor, you know, when we can, we can just be sort of cozy up with a computer in our, in our homes, not saying that like my life or your life during this time has been, you know, in any way easy, but it's just been more privileged in a way because we can shelter a place. But what have we been doing, right? We've been, in addition to trying to do the work that we uh, are doing in a really kind of impossible situation. My kids are still doing homeschool, whatever, right? Aside from that, I've been watching a ton of Netflix and Disney Plus, right? Because we're going through this incredibly trying time, and like the the we're 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 fortunate in a way um, that that we have these sort of escapes to 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 deal with the grief and the loss and the tragedy and the trauma of this time. I wonder though. And then we've been talking about it on Pop Torah. That's Don't forget right. to subscribe, um, rate, and review. So I'm about <laughs> smash that review, smash that subscribe button. Um, but it, I, I'm wondering, and I'm going to just undercut that for a second. Like, um, have we been 
failing ourselves and each other by doing that, right? Have we, have we not done enough to confront the reality of the pain and the loss and the trauma of this time? Have we been escaping too much? Um, I, I think some would say yes, that, that we, that we are ignoring, right. That every death in this pandemic is becoming, but a number, um, I think there's, right, two- I can, right. I can turn the chat, right. I, I like, I, you know, I had flipped on CNN for a second this morning. I almost never watch cable news, but they have like the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the death toll scrolling on CNN. I was just like, that's too much. And I, you know, I turned the channel, but I can turn the channel. I can look right. away. Well, I think it's twofold. That's the societal grief. And I think that there are elements of societal grief that will stay with us for a long time, right? Our, our children's educational and social developments from uh, many months, if you know, over a year of remote schooling, a virtual school, that is a, a different type of grief or more of a, a PTSD to this experience. But that's very different than the individuals in our communities uh, who have lost loved ones to to this, right? Um, they, every day, right, they're searching for moments of joy because all around us, right, we know this, when somebody is, has lost a loved one, um, whether it's been a tragic loss or a, a loss that they knew was coming, uh, every loss ultimately is a tragic loss. And we look for those moments of humor to get us through the grief of every day, right? Mike, you were talking about the permanence of Kriya of tearing our garment. Traditionally, we're taught that we actually tear our garment the moment we hear that somebody has died, um, right? That's what we find in Tanakh. Um, it's only later that it becomes a part of the funeral service itself. And there is an animalistic instinct into that. It's like when you want to scream into a pillow or punch the wall, the closest I see to it is when Pietro dies in Age of Ultron, you, it immediately switches to the scene of Wanda blasting her red hex magic all throughout Sokovia in this sort of animalistic uh, grief fury. I, I don't know what else to call it. Um, and I, I think sometimes grief causes rage when we are not able to process it. And that's where I think Jewish ritual, going back to this, really comes into play. Jewish ritual is meant to help us process it. I believe uh, our, our rabbis, who dealt with a lot more loss than we did, right? Uh, that the, the infant mortality rate was, was much higher, right? Many of them buried way more children than anybody ever should have to. They created ritual to address serious issues of their time, and that was how do you process grief? You know, uh, Sharon Browse uh, spoke about this a lot uh, during uh, in a beautiful sermon uh, on Rosh Hashanah this year, where she talks about the what the rabbis uh, did with the destruction of the temple as a model for, you know, how to navigate, you know, this time of grief, you know, what they said is, you know, first thing that they did was they mourned, right? Like, you know, they, they, they had to uh, sit in the sackcloth and ashes of, um, of the destruction of the temple and the loss of life, right? They couldn't just move on. Right. Um, then they, then she said, they told the truth, right? And they, she said, you know, that, that, you know, they didn't like just go around sort of like, 
you know, blaming their enemies for uh, uh, for what had happened or or ignoring it, right? That they said, no, this happened because of Sinat Chinam. Uh, this happened because like we did this to ourselves. And then she said that they that that they rebuilt. Um, and so as sort of like a model for, you know, how we deal with grief, both public grief and private grief of, of you know, mourning and acknowledging that reality of telling the truth about it um, and then figuring out, okay, what are the, when you haven't had an opportunity to do that, when you've done that seriously, then saying, okay, what, um, what is, what is life look like moving on from this, right? Rebuilding and reimagining life moving on from this, right? And so, you know, Wanda in this is, is almost doing the exact opposite of those things, right? Refusing to grieve, not telling the truth and, um, and, and, and trying to stay in a sort of like, you know, um, uh, imagined reality and, and refusing to move forward and, and, and rebuild. But I wanna ask a different question, uh, Jesse, which is, you know, we saw this in, in episode four, especially, where we see the the real world uh, uh, attempting to figure out and then intrude on the world that Wanda has created. It, They're it basically makes, doing what we, the viewers, are doing, trying to figure out what's going on. Right, right. Uh, which is, you know, it, uh, we went from the Brady Bunch to almost like the X Files uh, in that uh, in that last episode. It's Marvel wonder, Studios trolling us. Yeah. So I'm wondering about this question, which is, you know, what what is what is that? Tell us about um, how we relate to other people who are uh, dealing with grief, even if they're, whether they're dealing with grief in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. You know, I think when, uh, then she called herself Geraldine, when Monica Rambeau gets sucked into to this reality and befriends Wanda, I think she's trying to comfort her and comfort her grief. I, I don't think they know, right? They don't know what is causing this. There's a scene in episode four when the acting director of S.W.O.R.D., who, by the way, I think is is right an evil guy. There's something he, he's, right? Whenever you see a suit and tie like that uh, in a government agency, it's always a red flag. Um, I, I think um, he says, who's causing this? What's causing this? Is this live? Uh, and... Uh, Darcy Lewis, Dr. Darcy Lewis is like, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know. I think they're trying to figure out what's going on because they don't know what's going on. And as Jimmy Woo says, right, it's a town of missing persons. And so that's really what they're, they're trying to do. They're trying to respond to that. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how they ultimately respond when episode four ends with Monica Rambeau saying it's Wanda, it's all Wanda. And do they then see her as a threat or do they try to help her or comfort her? I think um, in the Jewish community overall, we are really good at Shiva. We show up, many of our synagogues, my synagogue, right? We send Shiva meals. We have Minyan, we do all that. And then after Shiva, we all have already moved on with our lives. And uh, we forget that mourning still continues and the grief is still very raw. That is something where we need to do a much better job at holding people's hands during the period of Shloshim, during that first year of mourning. And that is something that, you know, I wonder how the show will play it out. Are they responding to the potential threat of Wanda's powers or are they going to respond by comforting her and embracing her loss, right? You have these 
stages of loss and stages of grief. And one of them is acceptance. And so it begins ultimately with Wanda having to accept the reality that she's puppeteering a, a dead vision, as we saw at the end of episode four. And that may cause her to go uh, even further to the extreme of, uh, of angry and mad and violent. We don't know. Right. You raise a really good question there about, you know, the, the, the outside world, the, you know, the, those, you know, agencies like, like sword um, that are in the FBI that are investigating what's going on uh, with, with Westview uh, and, and ultimately with Wanda, um, you know, do they care about this, you know, because they're afraid of her? Um, do they care about this because she's an asset? Right. Um, I, I think, I think it was, um, Robert Redford's character in, in Captain America, uh, the Winter Soldier, um, that talks. You know, he's he's you know trying to create uh, you know these uh, this this sort of uh, is it Winter Soldier or Civil yeah. War? Winter he's trying to create these. The, anyway, the, the, maybe it's not. Sorry, I'm maybe confused here a little bit by uh, mixing up movies. But there's a there's a, a moment where they're you know talking about. Um, creating, you know, governmental regulations on the Avengers. Oh, um, that's Civil and, War, the Sokovia Accords. Right, the Sokovia Accords. Right, that's They're, Secretary again, Ross. Right, related back to the Sokovia issue. Uh, and there's a line in there where, you know, like they don't know where Thor is. And it's like, okay, so you just, or they don't know where uh, the Hulk is or something like that. They don't know where Hulk is because Hulk went missing after Ultron. Right. And, um, and they're like, Civil oh, War. so you just have like a, you know, a, a 40 megaton nuclear bomb, you know, missing, right? And that's the, kind of the issue with Wanda, right? So they are, are they afraid of that? Is she an asset that they're missing? Or, you know, do they do they really care about what she's going through? Right. And and that to me is the is is the biggest issue. And that's where I think so many of us Or if we could get really dark, uh, we don't know anything about Sword, right? Sword was created by Maria Rambeau. Uh, who we only saw in 1995 uh, time period when Captain Marvel takes place. We don't know. Sword may have created whatever is responsible for causing this. It's weird that the FBI needs Sword's help for what they called initially a missing person case. Uh, I think Sword is in this deeper than we know so far. You could be very right about that. My question, though, is, and I think this is related to what you're saying, you know, the, the way we as a community uh, or as individuals deal with uh, the grief uh, that that's being experienced by friends or, or community members, loved ones. You know, do we do we um, you know do we um, do we approach it um, uh, through you know through fear, right? In the sense that like, or, or or maybe that's a little strong, but to say like you know uh, out of obligation, right? Um, uh, or do we do it you know because um, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we want the, we want to like feel good about it. Uh, we, you know, we want the satisfaction of having doing it. We want the rewards that come with doing it, the admiration that comes with doing it. Right? Those are some of the, you know, are they doing it out of, out of, you know, fearing Wanda? Are they doing it out of a sense that she's an asset or do they actually like genuinely care about what she's going through? And that's, I think some of the work that, you know, that, that I, you know, uh, would say for me and that I would encourage other people to do is, you know, in someone encountering grief is how are you showing up for them? Um, are you showing up for them as somebody who genuinely cares about how they're doing um, or, at, you know, for some, uh, some other motivation? I think that that makes a big difference. The other is- And you know, when Misha are you says, showing up for them? The ongoing showing up, right, not the just ongoing showing up for them. Right. Um, 
and it, all the more so, right? Mission Pirkei Avot says that we, you know, we shouldn't try to appease our fellow in, in a time of their anger or, uh, or, or uh, you know, try to uh, console them when their dead is lying before them, right? In other words, it's the idea in, in Shiva that you can show up, but, uh, but, but you let the person who's experiencing grief dictate the terms of how you show up. Right and 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 what you talk about and how you talk about it, um, and so I think that that's you know again you know the um, I wonder how that's going to play out in in Wandavision uh, here. There's another aspect of this too, moving away from grief for a second, Jesse. Um, the the idea of uh, of Wanda and Vision being these extraordinary individuals, um, you know, who've, who who are in this. Um, you know, kind of cookie cutter reality that I guess Wanda has constructed for them. Uh, but nevertheless, Wanda and Vision are trying to fit in, uh, you know, uh, uh, and and hide who they really are. Uh, so much so that, you know, uh, Vision puts on a human face when he, you know, goes to work, right? Um, it, it, it strikes me that there's a commentary there about the process of assimilation, what's gained by assimilating and what's lost by assimilating. American Jews have been wrestling with this for a couple of hundred years now. Um, did the show bring up anything about that for you? That's a really good question, Mike. I think it's partially about assimilation. I think it's partially about um, how we respond sometimes to bigotry uh, that may be thrown our way. Um, right? Out of a fear of, of a rise of anti-Semitism, do we not put the Hanukkah in our windows um, out of fear of how people will respond? And do we just try to fit in? Uh, or do we all the more so wear our kippot out in public and saying, I am loudly and proudly Jewish? I wonder if Wanda's fear of fitting in is so people will treat her as normal or... Um, also because of how much harm that, that she has caused, um, right? That scene that you were talking about in Civil War when Secretary Ross was showing- That's who it is. That was William yeah. Hurt's character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's showing all these, these scenes. It was like uh, DC, New York, Sokovia, Lagos. And when he shows Lagos, which, which um, is what's- Scarlet Witch was responsible for that damage. Finally, Steve Rogers, Captain America was like enough because he saw the pain that she was feeling by causing so much pain to others. And I think part of this may be a fear that her pain towards others or, or rather that her hurting others will cause people to be fearful of her. And I, I wonder how much of the assimilation was, hey, where that that um, right urban legend of throwing our Tollisons of Fillin uh, overboard as the ship comes into harbor at Ellis Island, leaving- but Because we just want to be normal and fit right. in. Right. And, and how much of it is the assimilation is a fear that people will ostracize us because uh, we, we are Jewish. There are in some ways two sides of the same coin, uh, but in some, but in some ways they're different. One is about acceptance because we want to be American and, and our idea of what it means to be American. And the other is we're fearful of how people will treat us because we're different. 
what we learn is to embrace our, our differences. Uh, I, I think that that's going to play out at the end. Ultimately, I, 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 my prediction for the show is that its vision is going to be the one to uh, literally burst this bubble. Uh, he's going to uh, stop changing his face. He's going to start walking around with his uh, Android synthesoid mask, you know, his his robot version of himself on. And people are going to realize that this is not the uh, suburban happily ever after story, which will then force Wanda to realize that as well. It's so easy for us. I see this less of an assimilation and more, right, how we view each other in social media. We want to, you know, put these great pictures up of, oh, my kids are the best. Oh, you know, my spouse is the best. Oh, I'm having the time of my life because we see other people doing that. And we don't want to be public about our grief. We rarely publicly talk about loss or illness or, or mental illness, um, we never talk about grief publicly because we think in our, our Instagram posts are just for pictures of, of sunrises. And um, if we did that, then we'd all be better off in knowing that we don't have to hide doing that. So for me, it's, it's not as much a story of assimilation. I, I appreciate that analogy. And it's more so telling, really, really telling how as a society, we suggest that we have to put on a face, right? We have to smile and pretend that everything's okay. And we don't give enough space publicly for us to deal with when it's a bad day. What about you, Mike? No, I, I, I echo uh, a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I guess just to kind of make a pitch for assimilation here a little bit, right? Um, so, I, I have, you know, of two minds about it, uh, because on the one hand, there's no denying that, you know, to, to enter into the show for a second, there's no denying that there's something special about Wanda and Vision. Uh, and to obscure that totally in order to fit into the, you know, the, the, the reality that they're living in um, is, you know, not only uh, unfair to themselves, right? A denial of, of who they are. And there's something warping about that, you know, uh, internally to, to pretend that you're something that you're not. Uh, but it's also an abdication of responsibility, right? Like that's actually a pretty well-worn trope in, in superhero movies, all, dating all the way back from, to I think it's Superman 2, the Richard Donner Superman, where Superman has to decide, you know, is he going to, you know, just be Clark Kent in order to um, in order to live with Lois Lane, um, or is he going to, you know, be Superman? Um, and, you know, you have that in, in Spider-Man 2, and right, it's throughout, right? And, and the question of, okay, you know, if you're, if you're an extraordinary person, um, can you live as an ordinary person without, uh, without you know, uh, without confronting the reality that, like, that there are going to be people that you could have saved but you chose not to, right? Um, that you could have used your powers for good, uh, but you decided to abdicate that uh, that 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 responsibility. And I think that that's true for you know that that's part of the question for, of assimilation for for Jews is, is like okay yes you know you know we, we have the privilege in American society that that most of us 
um, uh, who came here uh, uh, throughout American history have had uh, have a bit of European descent and have had white skin. And so we could take our kippas off, we could get a haircut, we could shave our beards, uh, we could stop wearing tzitzit, we could do all sorts of things that make us look like white people, that make us pass for white. Uh, and so therefore become assimilated into white culture. Um, but two things happen there. First is, you know, uh, that, that, you know, the, the assimilation into white America, it is just was, I think, distorting for the Jewish soul. We're still, I think, experiencing the ways in which that's true, the ways in which um, white fragility continues to play out in, uh, in, in, in Jewish spaces that are multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, today, uh, but are still predominantly white uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and therefore have a much more conflicted um, uh, relationship when it, with, uh, with, with communities of color, uh, with uh, movements for racial and economic justice, all of those things. Um, so there is a, a, a distorting effect of our assimilation. Um, and then there is, you know, the, uh, the abdication, not only of what makes us special as Jews, uh, but also of uh, what makes us uniquely responsible as Jews, our, our sense of, you know, as that is that as Jews, we have uh, special obligations, um, uh, a sense of, uh, you know, of commitment to making the world a better place. And if what we do is we want to say, you know, it's better for us to just become, you know, white Americans, um, then we, uh, uh, then, then I think that there's uh, something uniquely lost. Um, right, then, then we can't, we, we abdicate our responsibility to be Orla Goyim, to be this light unto the world. Right. So, okay. So, uh, Jesse, in the, as we wrap up, where do you think uh, WandaVision is going to go? Where, where, where's the end game here, to borrow a phrase? <laughs> um, the one who said we're in the end game now, I am calling it now. I think Kevin Feige has said that this relates to Doctor Strange and the, uh, Multiverse of Madness, the Doctor Strange sequel. I think Doctor Strange is going to show up in the show. Uh, he's the only one who has magic, uh, if you will, that can really um, fight uh, Wanda's magic or he'll be there ultimately to comfort her. But I, I think her grief is going to get worse before it gets better as is the case with grief. And it's actually going to cause the multiverse to happen, at least for a period of several more MCU shows and films before that gets resolved. There's a good chance that there is somebody behind it all. Uh, as Darcy Lewis says, somebody is, is editing this, right? Somebody is, is controlling what feed we actually see. So it could be somebody is taking advantage of her grief. That could be the Mephisto character, uh, Marvel's version of, of the devil, and it could be how right demonic figures in Marvel take advantage of people's grief, uh, but but I I think um, uh, Doctor Strange is going to come in at the end and it's going to lead right into the next film. What about you, Mike? Uh, so I, I think that uh, I'm less equipped to uh, talk about the possible endgame of this than you are. Um, I think that we are due for the introduction of a new big bad in the MCU. Uh, uh, you know, we, we uh, obviously had the death of. Thanos in uh, Avengers Endgame, uh, but he was the, you know, sort of overarching big bad of uh, any number of the uh, first few phases of the uh, MCU. Um, I don't know enough about, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the 
the rogues gallery of, of Marvel to say, you know, who uh, the, uh, the next big bad uh, is going to be, but I'm, I'm, I'm relatively sure that you're right, that there is going to be some kind of, you know, uh, orchestrating uh, element to this that is going to be uh, an antagonist. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, cameos from, um, from, from the likes of other Avengers. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I think that the, um, the idea of multiverses, you know, that was sort of hinted at as a bait and switch in Spider-Man Far From Home is kind of the next iteration of the MCU. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if in some way uh, that, uh, you know, that plays in here as well. So it also therefore wouldn't surprise me that, uh, that uh, we, we get some cumber patch. And just to uh, one theory, right? Scarlet Witch herself may be the next big bad uh, there, right? What happens when we don't process our grief? What happens when some people aren't there to comfort us? We could go down a, a, a downward spiral, this, this deep, dark uh, hole and um, it could be that that's right. If this does not get resolved at the ends, things may get worse for Scarlet Witch before they get better. I mean, you could be you know, really right about that. I mean, listen, Scarlet Witch was introduced to the MCU uh, as a villain. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think that the, um, the forces that kind of uh, kept her uh, in, the, in, in the fold of the, you know, the side of good, uh, you know, are both gone. Right, uh, uh, Tony Stark and and uh, and Steve Rogers um, are are both gone, and she's also grappling with you know the 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 ramifications of events that that you know that uh, during their tenure as the leaders of the Avengers. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised also if if she in some ways you know uh, held on to resentment about that, and uh, that would make a very compelling big bad for the MCU. Uh, I think that um, the, the MCU has a patchy track record when it comes to uh, antagonists. The best ones are the ones that have, you know, relationships with and personal stakes with the heroes. Um, so this would be a, a really good use of, of, uh, of Scarlet Witch uh, to, to make her play bad. Well, we have five episodes left to, uh, let's wait and see. Well, until then, We'll, uh, we'll leave you uh, looking, uh, you know, don't touch that dial, uh, don't change that channel, uh, and we'll see you again uh, next, uh, same, what, same vision time, same vision channel. What, don't what try to MCU throw in that, that, that DC Batman <laughs> stuff on us. Even though our theme music is- That, that uh, is true, that is true. Is the DC <laughs> Batman, all right. Uh, well, until next time, uh, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Take care, everyone.